Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, found on page 804 in the Pew Bibles. As Rick already reminded us this morning, Christmas is over, and this is the time of year when we begin to look ahead to the new year and begin to think about some of the things that we might want to do differently. We usually call them New Year's resolutions, things that we want to improve, things we want to change in the coming year. I know some people are cynical about New Year's resolutions. They're, they're cynical because they know their history with them. They know that uh, they have resolved many times in the past uh, and have failed to follow through. Most New Year's resolutions die before the end of January. But nevertheless, I think resolutions are a good thing. I think Christianity is a religion of resolutions, of resolving to deny yourself and to follow Christ. And so I think it is appropriate for us to think about what resolutions God would have us make in this coming year. I would have us to think about our resolutions in light of Christmas. What did Jesus come for? What was His purpose? What was His goal? What was His priority? And how should that affect the resolutions we make for the coming year? You know, some of the most popular resolutions have to do with, with losing weight or, or eating better or, or getting more exercise or stopping smoking or drinking or, or starting to save money or pay off debt. And, and each and every one of those are good things. Those are things that we ought to endeavor to do. But I wonder, and I want us to wonder together this morning, is there something else that God would have us to resolve in this coming year? Is there anything that God has to say to us about the type of resolutions that we ought to make as disciples of Jesus Christ? That's what I want us to think about this morning. I want us to do it in light of what Paul has to say to us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So let us pray and ask for God's grace to understand and uh, to receive this portion of His Word. Pray with me. Father God, we are about to open Your Word. We are about to meditate upon it together. We pray that You would be gracious to us as we do. That You would give us Your grace to understand it. That You would give us Your grace to receive it. And that You would give us Your grace to obey it, Father, that we might bring forth the fruits of righteousness in our lives, all to the praise of Your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31 through 33. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that is the reading of God's Word. I suspect that these are familiar verses to most of us here this morning. If you've been in the church very long, and especially if you've been in a PCA church very long, you have heard these verses many times. They are at the very foundation of our catechism, that teaching that we give to uh, young believers. 
Our first, uh, our catechism asks, what is man's chief end? And the answer comes back, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You were created to do everything you do to the glory of God. And so obviously, this is a clear directive for whatever New Year's resolutions we might uh, be planning to make. Whatever we resolve to do in the coming year, it must be done in light of our obligation, our, our calling as disciples of Jesus Christ to do everything we do to the glory of God. If you've ever read through Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, you know that this was at the heart of all of the resolutions that he made. He resolved to do anything and everything that he did to the glory of God. But the question that I want to ask this morning is, what does that really mean? We say it a lot. We talk about doing everything we do to the glory of God often. But what does it really mean to do everything to the glory of God? In my experience, I think that we usually think about these verses having an a inward focus. We think about these verses as, as speaking to uh, the attitude of our heart, about our, our disposition as we go about our daily business. They, these verses speak about the way that we do the things that we do. They, they tell us that, that we should be uh, honest, that we should work hard, that, that we should be diligent, that we should be kind. They, they tell us how, the, the attitude of heart that we are supposed to have as we go about what we do. And certainly that is correct. Certainly, doing all to the glory of God involves doing things with a certain attitude, with a, with a certain heart disposition. But I want us to see this morning that it is more than that. That it is more than just doing things in a certain way. It is more than just working hard or being honest. Paul's charge to do all things to the glory of God is first and foremost a charge to live missionally. It is first and foremost a charge to live with the other person's knowledge of God and the other person's relationship to Jesus Christ in mind. It is to do all things for the sake of their salvation. To do all to the glory of God, which is what we all ought to be resolving to do means that we are resolving to live in such a way that God's goodness, that God's supreme worth, that His righteousness, and, and most importantly, the greatness of His love and grace in Jesus Christ is evident in everything that we do and say so that those whom we interact with on a daily basis may be inclined to love God and to receive Christ, and to be saved. We see this even in the verses that we read where, where Paul goes on in verse 32 after saying, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. He says, in verse 33 actually, he says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Doing to the glory of God has everything to do with your mission as a disciple of making disciples. You have been called, because you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be a disciple maker. 
and living to the glory of God is at the heart of that calling. It is at the heart of your mission as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we see this most clearly if we look at the whole context of Paul's argument. Paul's statement in verse 31 to do whatever you do to the glory of God comes on the heels of his discussion that he began all the way back in chapter 8, verse 1, a discussion about food sacrificed to idols. Now, I know that's not a real hot topic in the evangelical church today. We, we sometimes think, well, what could this possibly have to do with us? I, I can't remember the last time that I had to you know, face the dilemma, should I eat this steak that was sacrificed to Baal or not? You know, should, I, should I eat this pork loin that was, that was sacrificed to Artemis? It hasn't been a real dilemma in my life. I've, I've never faced that situation. And I suspect that none of you have either. But nevertheless, this discussion has everything to do with our present context. And I want to help you uh, to see that this morning. So turn back with me to chapter 8, verse 1. And I want to just slowly walk our way through Paul's entire flow of thought here that leads us up uh, to his climactic statement in chapter 10 that we are to do everything we do to the glory of God. You'll notice that Paul is, as he does throughout Corinthians, he is addressing a question that was posed to him by the Corinthians, a question about food that had been offered to idols. And you'll notice in verse 4 that Paul begins his discussion with this acknowledgement. He says, listen, I know as well as you do that an idol has no real existence. The Corinthians had been saying, you know, what difference does it make if you eat food sacrificed to idols? An idol is nothing. An idol has no real existence. So how could it possibly make any difference? How could it, how could it possibly matter whether you're eating food sacrificed to idols or not? And Paul says, listen, I agree with you. I acknowledge uh, your premise. A f- an idol has no real existence. But then immediately he says, but this does not mean that you ought to feel free to eat the food that has been sacrificed to idols. Why? We see it in verse 7. Because not all possess this knowledge. Paul says, Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. He says, listen, not everyone has the knowledge that you do. Not everyone knows that that idols have no real existence. Not everyone knows that, that idols are nothing. And so therefore, you ought not to feel free to eat food that has been sacrificed to an idol. Paul's concern here is for the weaker brother. It's for their their conscience. He says that the stronger brothers, those those who know, those who, who possess knowledge, he says they ought to be willing to give up their rights. The right that is afforded to them by their, their knowledge that an idol doesn't exist, they ought to be willing to give up that right for the sake of not wounding their weaker brother, for the sake of not leading their weaker brother into sin, for not distorting their weaker brother's understanding of, of who God is and what the Gospel is all about. You see, it seems that these Corinthians who, who knew that an idol was nothing, they were wanting to, to put that knowledge on display. They were wanting to show the the strength and the maturity of their faith by eating this food that had been sacrificed to idols and saying, oh, it's nothing. What difference could it possibly make? An idol has no real existence. But Paul says, listen, eating your food, uh, eating food that's been sacrificed to idols doesn't impress God. That's not going to commend you to God, he says in verse 8. 
Eating food sacrificed to idols and showing off the strength of your faith isn't going to make God proud of you. In fact, it may do just the opposite. What makes God, what commends you to God, what what makes God proud, so to speak, is when you give up your rights for the sake of the weaker brother. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, that's quite a claim. I will never eat meat. Now, I know meat was not as common in the first century as it, as it is today, but, but in our house, we, we used to have a saying, we used to say, no meat, no meal. You know, if you don't have meat at a meal, it, it, it's, not, it's not really a meal. It's just sort of a snack. You haven't really had a meal until you've had some meat. And Paul's here saying, listen. Listen, if meat makes my brother stumble, I will give up meat altogether. I will not partake. I will surrender my right out of concern for my brother, out of concern for his understanding of the gospel. This is what leads us into chapter 9. Some people read chapter 8 and they, they see that Paul comes back to this topic in chapter 10. And they wonder, well, what was chapter 9 all about? Why, how did that fit in the flow of what Paul is talking about here? Because all of a sudden he's not talking about meat sacrificed to idols. He's, he's not talking about idols at all, but rather he's talking about uh, not having a wife with him on his missionary journeys and not getting paid for his service and being all things to all people. What in the world is he talking about here in chapter 9? But I hope you can see that it fits right in the flow of what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, as believers, we ought to be willing to give up our rights for the sake of the other person's faith. And that is what's at the heart of chapter 9. Paul says, listen, I had a right to take a wife with me. I had a right to be, to be paid for my service. I'm glad for that verse. I'm glad that verse is in the New Testament. It says, you know, I can be paid for being a minister of the gospel. And I'm very glad that you are willing to pay me to be a minister of the gospel. But Paul says, listen, I had that right too, but I gave it up. I would take no pay for my service because I didn't want to be a hindrance. And this is what leads us into uh, verse 19, this climactic statement where he says, "For For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being, uh, not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those under the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. What is Paul saying? He said, listen, what is at the heart of my uh, thinking? What, is, what controls my resolutions? What controls my plans? What, what controls how I determine to live from day to day? It is my concern to adorn the gospel. It is my concern to make the glory of God known to those who do not yet know Him. To those who do not yet love God in Jesus Christ. He says, listen, I am willing to give up whatever rights I have for that end, and you ought to be willing to do the same. That is what living to the glory of God is all about. 
It is about being willing to give up our rights. It is about being willing to, to become all things to all people that we might win as many as possible. So then in chapter 10, he returns to this topic of idolatry and, and food, sacrifice to idols. And uh, you know, previously he had said, listen, okay, I, I grant your premise. I grant that an idol has no real existence. I, I grant to you uh, that uh, uh, while an idol is, is nothing, it makes sense that then eating to an idol would be nothing. But, but is it really? Let me challenge that premise a little bit. Let me, let's, let's confront that. He says, because, listen, if idolatry was really nothing, why did God care about it so much in the Old Testament? And he gives them this little warning. He says, lest any of you thinks he stands, he better be careful lest he fall. He said, your knowledge is starting to puff you up. You're, you're thinking beyond your abilities. You're, you're thinking yourselves into trouble here. You know, thinking that because an idol is nothing, I can, I can go ahead and, and eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. Paul says, listen, God takes idolatry very seriously. Just look at the way that he took it in the Old Testament. He says, look at uh, beginning in verse 10. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses uh, in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food. He's there. He's there alluding or comparing the, uh, the Old Testament a saint's experience to the present uh, saint at Corinth experience of participating in the body life of the church, especially the, the sacraments of that body life, the, the sacraments of baptism in the Lord's Supper. He says, listen. The people in the Old Testament, they were every minute as much a part of the people of God as you are. They, they participated in these same sacraments. But, verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And why wasn't God pleased with them? Why was God angry with them? Verse 6, verse 6 and 7, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What does Paul say? Why was God not pleased with them? Why uh, did he strike them down in the desert? Because they were idolaters. Because they participated in the worship of false gods. Paul says, Listen, really, Corinthians, do you really think that participation in false worship is not a big deal when God obviously takes it so seriously? Then he goes, well, let me tell you why it's a big deal. Let me, let me try to explain this to you. Let me try to explain to you the significance of participating in a religious meal. We see this in verses 14 and following. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. God takes it seriously. Flee from it, therefore. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, when you partake of the meal, of the sacrifice, you are participating in worship. 
You are participating in that sacrifice. When we eat uh, the, the Lord's Supper, when we partake of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, we are, we are claiming Him as our Savior. We are participating in His sacrifice. He said, when you participate in a false sacrifice, when you participate in a sacrifice made to a false god, you are doing the same thing. It's not that the idol has any real existence, but you are still participating in the worship of something that is other than God. You are participating in the work of demons even. Those who oppose God, those who seek to, to undermine God through false religion. He says, listen, you cannot say idolatry is no big deal because idols aren't real. Idolatry is a big deal because we have deceptive hearts. And when we, we worship that which has no real existence, we are still nevertheless defying God. We are still nevertheless turning our back on the One who alone is worthy of our worship. We must not participate in false worship. And that is exactly what you're doing when you eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. This all becomes very clear in verses 23 and following that, that what Paul's concerned about here when he says that we must not participate in, in the food in, in false worship, he's concerned about our weaker brother. He's concerned. He says, you may know that it's nothing, but listen, when you participate in false worship, you are denying the glory of God and you are distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ and you are causing other people uh, to stumble. You are causing other people to believe lies. You are, you are causing the new convert or the one who is not yet converted to, to believe that you can, you can worship the one true God and still continue to live in the way that you always did before. You are distorting the message of the gospel. So therefore you must not... Do it, not for your own sake, but for the sake of your brother. He says, listen, so if you go to the market and you, you see a piece of meat you want to buy, buy it, eat it. You don't have to worry about whether it was sacrificed or not. The truth is, in Paul's day, there probably wasn't any meat in the market that hadn't been sacrificed to something. And Paul says, listen, you don't need to worry about that. When you're buying meat for your own house, when you're buying meat for your own parties, don't, don't worry about the history of the meat. The fact that it was sacrificed to an idol doesn't defile it. But if you're at a neighbor's house and they tell you, hey, listen, this meat was sacrificed. They are, they are making it explicit. They're telling you, listen, this meal is a participation in the worship of, of this or that God. He says, then do not eat at that time. Why? Because your neighbor's made it explicit that he sees this meal as an act of worship. And you, for the sake of his conscience, ought not to participate in that meal. For the sake of His understanding of who God is, for the sake of His understanding of the Gospel, you ought to decline to eat. And how much more then ought you not to actually go to the temple of a false god to, to eat? So listen, do not do it. He says, uh, says, I do not mean for your conscience, verse 29, but for His. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of what I give thanks for? Here's the reason. Because my ultimate concern is not my freedom. My ultimate concern is not my right. But now we're back to verse 31. But rather my ultimate concern, whether I'm eating, whether I'm drinking, or whatever I'm doing, my ultimate concern is the glory of God. My ultimate concern is that His glory be put on display. 
when you hear it at the end of that whole argument, you see that Paul is saying more than just when you work, work hard. Work diligently. Do your work honestly. He's saying, listen, whatever you do, you ought to have a concern for your brother's faith. You ought to have a concern for his knowledge of God. You ought to have a concern for his relationship to Jesus Christ. You are missional people. And you are never off duty. You are always missionaries. You are always ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You are always ministers of the reconciliation that is available through His sacrifice. And you need to always live like it. You need to always live in such a way that puts His glory on display. So what does this mean for us in in practical terms? What is this this call to do all to the glory of God, uh, understood missionally? What does this mean for us on a a day-to-day level? Well, first let me tell you something that it doesn't mean. We could hear this and we could say, well, you know, this means that, that everything we do has to be explicitly evangelistic. That everything we do has to be harnessed for evangelism or else it's, it's not worth it. You know, if, if, we're, if we're musicians, then our songs must be explicitly Christian. If we're, if we're painters, then we must somehow explicitly proclaim the gospel in our paintings or our movies. If we're, uh, if we're workers, then, then our, uh, we must figure out ways to, to share the gospel through what we do. That's not, I don't think, what Paul is getting at. That's not what it means to, to live missionally. As, as people who are in the Reformed camp, we, we believe wholeheartedly that, that our, our work, our, our actions do not have to be harnessed for evangelism in order to be, to be good and proper. A, a musician can write music. Uh, a, a poet can write poetry. Uh, a, a filmmaker can make films. Uh, we, can, we can do things that are not explicitly uh, evangelistic and they are still legitimate. They are still good. They are still proper because they, reflect, they can reflect God's glory. But this is what it does mean. It does mean that when we write music, that when we uh, write novels, that when we make movies, when we do these things, that they must be consistent with the truth that we profess to believe. Christians ought not to make nihilistic movies. Christians ought not to to make materialistic movies. Christians, when, when Christians make music... They ought, to they ought not to follow the example of someone like, like John Cage. I don't know if you've, you've ever heard of him, but John Cage is the one who, who puts a microphone out on the street and, and then uh, records what he, what he comes across and calls it a symphony. He is, by doing that, he is, he is testifying that this world is meaningless, that beauty is subjective, that no, art has no real value. Christians ought not to follow his example, but Christians ought to uh, acknowledge the beauty of the creation that God has, has made. Whether they're doing classical music or, or country music or pop music, whatever it is, they ought to do it well. An artist not, ought not to, to follow the example of someone like Pollock who, who let randomness control his paintings. But rather, he ought to express the, the, his dominion over creation. Well, Again, whether he's doing abstract art or, or realistic art. We ought to act in a way that is consistent with what we say. A way that, that puts the truth of the gospel on display. It doesn't have to be explicitly evangelistic, but it does have to be true to the truth. It does have to display God's glory. The second thing that this means, or the second thing that this doesn't mean, 
is it doesn't mean that our vocations, whether it's our vocation as a student, whether it's our vocation as a mom, whether it's our, our vocation at work, it doesn't mean that our vocations are mere pretexts for evangelism. Again, this is a mistake that evangelicals sometimes make. They, they think that their job is just God's way of, of letting them meet people so they can share the gospel with them. I once knew a man who, who lost his job because he was, uh, every time he went out on a call, he would, he would spend much too long trying to share the gospel with the person rather than, than doing the job that he had been there called to do. And he viewed this as, as being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. And slowly we tried to explain to him, no, you know, you're, you're being persecuted for not doing your job. Uh, you're being persecuted for being lazy. It doesn't appear to you as laziness because you're, you're working hard to share the gospel with these people, but you're not doing what you're paid to do. Our jobs are not mere pretext for evangelism. Your, your life at school is, is valuable in itself. Your life at home is valuable in itself. Your life at work is valuable in itself. You are to do that work as unto the Lord. It is not simply a pretext for you to have the opportunity to share the gospel. But again, in that context, it does mean that your life must be consistent with the gospel you want the opportunity to share. Down the road, when, when they do ask you about the hope that you have, you do not want your life to be a stumbling block to them, but an example you can point to as, as something that puts on display the truth. So what does it mean? It doesn't mean uh, that we must do everything with an explicit evangelism. It doesn't mean that our vocations are a mere pretext. But it does mean this. It means that everything we do must be consistent with the truth about God and about Jesus Christ. That everything we must do, to borrow Paul's phrase, is that it must adorn the gospel. It must put the gospel of, of God and Jesus Christ on display. When I was a kid... Sports were very important to me. Sarah tells me I use too many sports illustrations, but you just have to live with it. Um, when I was a kid, sports were very important to me. It was, it was, I was, it was everything. And whether it didn't matter what the sport was, I played soccer, I played golf, I played pickup basketball, I played wiffle ball, I, I played anything and everything I could. If it involved a, a ball and and someone won at the end, I was happy. That's what I wanted. But when I didn't play well, or, or when we lost a game that we should have won, I would become violently angry. I would become furious. And my dad, you know, he would talk to me about it. He would, he would say, you know, I know where you got that temple because it came straight from him. He said, but listen, you've got to learn. You've got to learn to control that. Why? Because that anger belies the gospel. That anger says to everyone who's watching, this sport is my life. This sport is my meaning. This sport is my purpose, my happiness, my, my joy, my contentment. It is my all. Not Jesus. Not, his, not doing His will. Not following Him. Not His love for me. But winning this game. My anger belied the Gospel. I had to learn to, to lose more Gracefully, I had to learn to still play hard, to still want to win, but to acknowledge at the end of the game that this game is not my life. We must do that in all kinds of ways in our life. How, do, how does your life belie the Gospel? Many of the, for many of us, our lives belie the Gospel because we say we know that possessions are not our life. Possessions are not our, our happiness, but we work 
And we live to, to acquire and to enjoy, enjoy things. Or we say that success, human success, is not ultimately what we're after, but, but our life belies it. Because we pursue human success with such zeal that we have no time for anything else. Or we say that uh, you know we uh, are we know that our God is sovereign and that He is good, but but we worry all the time. We worry about everything. We worry about the economy. We worry about our retirement. We worry about our job. We worry. We worry. We worry, and our anxiety belies the gospel. It says that what we claim to believe with our mouth is not really believed in our heart. When we are depressed and, and overcome with a sense of meaninglessness and, and vanity, we belie the gospel. We belie that we were created to glorify and enjoy God. When we are bitter or, or discontent, we belie the gospel. We do it in so many ways when our lives are out of accord with what we claim to believe. Francis Schaeffer once said that the Christian life form is actually pretty simple to figure out. He said, just live like what you claim to believe is true, is actually true. Live like what you claim to believe is true is actually true, and you will be living the Christian life. You say that God is good. You say that He is sovereign. You say that He has loved us in Jesus Christ, and that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Live like that's true, and you will be living to the glory of God. So here is my challenge for you at the beginning of this new year. As you make resolutions, it's okay to resolve to lose weight. It's okay to resolve to eat better. Those are all good things. But whatever you resolve, have this at the foundation of your thinking, that you are a missionary, that you have a mission, that you are called to put the glory of God on display, that as many as possible might be saved. Resolve that this year, whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, you will do all to the glory of God. That is a resolution worth making. And that is a resolution that you can be confident He will honor. And because He will honor such a resolution, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Pray with me. Father God, Help us to know with a divine certainty that we are called to put your glory on display. And while we are not sufficient to such a task, our sufficiency comes from you. Father God, I pray that you would be with each and every one of us this year. That you would be strengthening us. That you would be equipping us more and more day after day to live to your glory. And that through our lives, others might be inclined to know You, to love You in Jesus Christ, and to bow the knee and to serve You in all of their life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.